Today's reading is Mark chapter 10, verse 35 to 52. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. So they called to the blind man, Cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. This is God's word. Thank you, Ali. Good morning, everyone. My name is Pete Snow. I'm one of the assistant ministers here and we uh, leave behind Genesis this morning and we turn to one of the Gospels because Easter's approaching. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we, as we look to Easter and we think about the thought of your son coming to earth, dying for our sins and rising again, help us to understand it afresh, we pray. Help, give us eyes and ears to hear and to listen whether this is the first time that's ever occurred to us or the the thousandth time. We pray you'd bring a blessing from your word this morning. Amen. So, who are the best Christians? Who are the Christians with whom God is 
really pleased. Who are the ones for whom, when they die and they enter heaven and they step through the pearly gates, you know, the fanfare will be particularly loud and trilly and fancy? Who will be the ones to whom Jesus puts an arm on their shoulder and particularly says, come, come sit here at my right and my left in glory at the heavenly banquet? The first bottle of heavenly vintage, you know, it's going to be open for you and you're going to taste it. If you think that sounds a bit strange, a bit vulgar perhaps to talk about the best Christians, I kind of agree, but just look at verse 40 in our passage with me. Jesus seems to say these places do exist. He says, to sit at my right or left, verse 40, is not for me to grant, but these places, they do exist. They belong to those for whom they've been prepared. The question is a bit vulgar, as we'll see. But Jesus does seem to say there are Christians with whom God is, is pleased. They, they, their, their service pleases him. Please don't misunderstand me. I would really hate to lose you at this early stage. Uh, I'm not talking about your status as a Christian. I, I don't mean uh, it, this gets you into heaven. Your, your behavior will get you there. We believe, as it's revealed in the Bible, justification is by faith. I'm a Christian by faith. That's my status. But how about my behavior? What makes a Christian, once they're already a Christian and they believe Jesus died for my sins, what makes their behavior pleasing to God? You see? That's where we come to in this question. I said we were in the gospel because we're on the, we're on the road to Easter. This is the road to the cross, and we'll have three sermons in the lead up to Easter Sunday. We don't do this every year, um, I'm told. Uh, uh, but it's quite good for us just to walk the road to the cross with Jesus Christ. We're actually going to do it at the same speed as he did. Because, of course, Palm Sunday's next week. That was a week before Jesus' crucifixion. And we get to Good Friday, and then we get to Easter Sunday. So actually, we're going at the same speed that Jesus walked to Jerusalem. And we're in Mark's gospel, Mark's account of Jesus' life. And he, Mark deliberately gives us two conversations just side by side here at the end of chapter 10 to make a particular point. Can you believe that? That Mark particularly chose these two conversations? I mean, Jesus must have talked to tons of people when he was on the road to Jerusalem. He must have slept and eaten and had meals and chatted and said this and that. But Mark says, here's two you compare them. I think that's particularly obvious because did you notice the same question comes up twice? Exactly the same question, verses 36 and 51. Jesus says, first of all to the stubborn disciples and then to the blind beggar, what do you want me to do for you? You see, so Mark, he's putting these two things side by side. What, what do you want me to do for you? And he's inviting us to compare. What do you make of these people? What's the difference between them? Spot the difference. And I'll try and show you that the difference is that James and John, first of all, they ask for glory. And blind Bartimaeus, the beggar at the side of the road, asks for mercy. And he's the one who comes out better from this whole engagement. Okay, so James and John ask for glory. Blind Bartimaeus asks for mercy. Hopefully that's nice and simple. First of all, let's just have a look at James and John who ask for glory. Verses 35 to 45. I've called this sermon, How to Get the Best Seats in Glory. And I guess the, the first part of that answer is, not like this. Not like these two guys, because they make a hash of it. Let's just have a look. I've tried to break it down here. I think it's going to come up on the screen. The way they approach Jesus versus, uh, in, the, in the early part is to say, do whatever we ask. So it's a bit like coming to Jesus and asking for a blank check. Just have a look at verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. 
James and John are two of the 12 disciples. They've got this privileged access to Jesus. Maybe familiarity had just bred a little bit of contempt here. Uh, you know, they invite Jesus to write them a blank check. Uh, perhaps we should cut them some slack. They, they think they're good at reading the political stars. Jesus has just announced he's going to Jerusalem, chapter 10, verse 32. So just before this, he's going to Jerusalem. And they're thinking, terrific, 10 Downing Street, here we come. I mean, there's a place in the cabinet here, lads. So they sidle up to Jesus in an idle moment and they say, Jesus, hey, how's it going? Um, while the rest of the, the 10 are back there, um, have you thought about your Chancellor of the Exchequer? I mean, the Home Secretary? Maybe, yeah? Because... That will be good for us. We're going to Jerusalem. There's greatness on the way. That's their approach. Pretty vulgar, right? Then their question comes in quick succession. Uh, verse 37. They replied, Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. Jesus says, You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or the baptism or, or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? By the way, when Jesus talks about cup and baptism, that's some of his favorite imagery for talking about his death. It goes on. We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, okay, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with. I guess he says that because the disciples are going to suffer. They are going to often be killed violently or sent into exile, these two. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. So essentially, we're getting into Jesus' answer to their bold question, which is, no. I will not let you sit at my right or left, or at least it's not for me to grant, because you have totally misunderstood the nature of Christian leadership. Let me give you a lesson. And the rest of this conversation is Jesus dishing out a lecture in Christian leadership, which is very precious for James and John. It turns out to be precious for the rest of the twelve. And I think it's precious for us too. Let's read on. Verse 41. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Presumably, because they didn't think of it first. (laughs) Jesus called them together and he delivers this lecture. Look, guys. You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord over them. And their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Definitely not. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What Jesus is pioneering here is something that every Christian disciple needs to learn, and it's nothing less than a totally new vision of leadership. Do you see that in the way he spells it out? There's two basic styles of leadership, according to Jesus. There's Gentile, uh, non-Christian leadership, which goes like this. People lord it over you if they're in charge. They exercise authority over you, and they love it. So Gentile leadership is measured by strength. If I'm stronger than you, then I'm in charge. Jesus says that's one type of leadership. Another type of leadership, which I'm pioneering, says Jesus Christ, is this. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For that's what I came to do. So Gentile, non-religious leadership, measured by strength. Christian leadership, measured by service. Christian greatness is measured by service. It's not by your rank or your revenue or your reviews, however positive they might be. You can't measure it that way. 
think we love to measure things. Like for my tape measure that I keep under the stairs at home. I love to measure things. So length can be measured in centimeters or inches, can't it? You want to measure how loud something is, we use decibels. You want to measure the volume of liquid, then we, we use liters. You want to measure things. We have increments to do that. But Jesus says, don't try and do that with Christian greatness. Because it's measured in service. Just a brief history lesson at this point, if you'll forgive me. Uh, Humility as a public virtue really comes into being here when Jesus utters these words. So you can begin to associate it with the Jewish nation when they get humbled and downtrodden and they have to look to humility. But really, before this, the ancient non-religious world was obsessed with honor. And you get honor by achieving uh, rank, and you achieve rank by being strong, you see? So honor and shame is the basic paradigm. When Jesus begins to utter these words and Christendom catches on across Europe and the world, suddenly humility and service become the things that begin to be prized. It takes a while. But just as a point in history, this is where it all begins. If you go to cultures where they aren't so affected by Christianity historically, Japan, parts of the Middle East, for instance, the honor-shame paradigm still functions quite strongly there. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that if you're not a Christian, it's never occurred to you to serve other people, but it's just interesting historically to observe where this all comes from. In our culture, in in the West, you can be a total non-Christian, non-Jew, and yet you could serve in the armed forces and be publicly fated and lauded, and rightly so, because you are not just part of the armed forces, where strength is key, you're part of the armed services, where we serve, and you give your life to defend people, and that's an honorable thing. We'll give you a medal for that. The best employers in the West are known for being people who look after their employees, and they serve them, right? You know who the best employer employer of 2016 was, according to the Sunday Times? Forcom. Never heard of them, personally. But um, apparently they're the best, best middle-rank employer. Uh, they work in telemarketing. Their chairman is known for listening. He's got an 87% approval rating. Uh, everyone has private health care in the firm, including any member of your family. Uh, you, there's a breakfast bar in the office. There's flowers everywhere just to cheer people up. And uh, my favorite part, there are disco lights to uh, keep up morale in the call center. So... Even if you don't go that far in your workplace, uh, it's striking, isn't it? The best employers, the best soldiers, the best of us in the West are known for serving others because it's a virtue to serve others. Of course, the, the crunch comes when we consider, are we, are we doing that as employers, as a nation, to, to just get more out of people? Do they, in fact, put flowers and a breakfast bar and disco lights in the office just to generate more revenue? Do we, in fact, lord people who serve well in the army just to keep ourselves safe, to ultimately serve ourselves? Jesus is saying Christian service, real Christian greatness comes from serving others just because you love them, just because there's nothing in it for me. Greatness is measured in service. When I was an apprentice here at the church uh, 10 years ago, Time flies. Uh, one of our jobs, our weekly jobs as apprentices and ministry trainees was to clean the toilets downstairs, down there. Uh, it, was a, it was the job of the apprentices. And um, 
We put up with this for a couple of months of our apprenticeship, but eventually it began to take its toll, and a bit of moaning began to happen among the team of apprentices of which I was a part. Moan, grumble, grumble. Why should we have to do this? We didn't sign up for this. We wanted the real ministry of reading the Bible with people and all sorts of people work. Eventually, much to our joy, um, it was announced at a staff meeting that we weren't privy to that the church had decided to appoint a cleaner. Fantastic. Well, let's crack on with the real ministry, guys. This is great. So no more toilet cleaning for several weeks. And then one day I was locking up the church after a midweek prayer meeting and everything was dark and everyone had left the building and I saw a light was still on down the back there in the toilet. So I went down just to turn it off and lock the doors behind me. And I discovered the senior pastor of the church at the time at the bottom of the stairs with yellow rubber gloves on holding a toilet brush. And we looked at each other for quite a long moment. <laughs> and he was embarrassed to have been discovered because he didn't want to be. That's why he was doing it late at night. And as I looked at him, it dawned on me the cleaner that the church staff appointed was the senior pastor. Because I was so grumpy about having to serve other people that the senior pastor had to teach us a lesson and show us what real Christian leadership looked like. You don't move on in Christian ministry to sit in glory while other people work hard beneath you doing the menial work that you're past now. If you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you pull on the marigold gloves, metaphorically speaking, and you serve people. I think perhaps if Jesus Christ was senior pastor of a church, a local church, it wouldn't be out of character for him to be discovered with rubber gloves on and a toilet brush cleaning out the loos after everyone had gone. I think, indeed, it wouldn't be uncharacteristic to find him dealing gently with stubborn and recalcitrant disciples who were just annoying. I think, perhaps, it wouldn't be uncharacteristic to find him hanging on a cross, giving his life for other people, even when there was nothing in it for him. You know, this verse that ends the conversation, Mark 10, verse 45, is one of the most precious verses in all of the Gospels. They're all precious. They're, they all describe Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Uh, some parts of the Gospels describe Jesus' understanding of his going to his life, death, and resurrection. So we've had actually three of those in Mark's Gospel, three times, chapter 8, chapter 9, chapter 10. I am going to my death. The Son of Man must die. But here... This diamond that sparkles in the crown of Mark's gospel. Well, have a look. For even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Sometimes I think it's tempting for academics, or when you think about theology, to think that maybe the atonement, maybe Jesus dying for our sins is something that the, the, the writers of the letters, the apostles, made up in the Bible. Because it seems to crop up a lot later on in the New Testament. It doesn't really wash when you read Mark 10, verse 45, does it? The Son of Man came, didn't come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's an, that's an atoning death. That's a substitutionary death as a ransom for many, giving his life. So why was he doing that? Why Easter? Why this, Jesus? Mark never wastes his words, incidentally. He's known for his brevity. So here, this matters a lot. Well, look, just, let's just pay attention to this, this diamond of a verse. First of all, Jesus says, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. 
i.e. with the attitude of a servant. So I guess we're to think of the waiter at the table in the restaurant whose face we can't remember after we've finished our meal. I guess we're to think of the maidservant laying the fire or changing the bedsheets in the old manor houses of England who can barely look the lord of the manor in the eye as she's doing her work. I guess we're to think of the cleaner in a hundred offices around London who is mortified if any attention is drawn to them because their job is just to make things run smoothly and melt into the background. So Jesus came to serve like that. And the next clause, to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, as Brian explained in the children's slot with Teddy, uh, we, we tend to think of uh, ransom and we think uh, kidnapping. You know, that's the only time that word crops up these days. The ancients would have heard it and thought slavery. Slavery. That's the reason that someone would rejoice in a ransom being paid is because their life was held captive and suddenly some incredibly generous benefactor came and splashed a load of cash on them that they could never have afforded and they were set free from their bondage. In Mark 3, Jesus has already described the human condition as being bound to sin and to Satan. So this seems to be what he has in mind here. You know, it's difficult. I, as a preacher, I, I really tried to find an illustration that fitted Mark 10.45. I tried to find an illustration that talked about ransom, and there's lots of beautiful stories about hostages being freed because of ransoms. But of course, Jesus goes further than that because he talks about uh, giving his life as a ransom payment. Not just a box of money, that would be amazing enough, but my life. And then even if in some magical illustration you could combine those two things, a ransom payment by someone's life, then we're still talking about a ransom for many, for many people. Not just one precious individual who I want to save, but many people. I came to the conclusion in my sermon prep that there is no illustration. Perhaps that's for a good reason. Perhaps this is the most special moment that the world has ever seen. Perhaps this statement stands out and sparkles so much because there is nothing like this in the whole history of human leadership and greatness. Which begs the question, what sort of leader will you be? James and John were leaders amongst the disciples. What sort of leader will you be? I'm not just talking about church leadership, although that's definitely in view here. I'm talking about any sort of leadership, any area of life, in marriage, in your family, immediate or extended, in your workplace, in your small group Bible study, amongst your friendship groups. Has, has the Lord given you any area of leadership whatsoever in which you might be able to display some Christian greatness? If that's the case, if, if you've got anything, then don't lead by force. Don't lead by force. Any non-religious tyrant can lead by force. You know how that works? You've got a guy in North Korea, for instance, and he's strong enough to control the army and the government, and as long as he flexes his muscles, people are scared of him, and as long as he lives, he can rule by force. Anyone can be a bully of a dad, or a bully of a boss, or a bully in friendship, or a rebellious underling. Anyone can do that. You can flex your muscles and you can lead by force in whatever capacity God's given you. Don't lead by force. Why strength? Rather, lead by substitutionary love. I say that, of course, because if Christian leadership is measured by service, then any interaction I have with another person is essentially substitutionary. It's love. For example, you've got a difficult relationship with somebody, 
and their problems take a long time to unravel and sort out and try and engage with. You know that sort of person? So every time you're with them, you're conscious of a drain on your emotional resources, on your, on your time, on your uh, stress levels. You're, it's tempting just to constantly glance, glance at your watch and maybe just try and make a, a graceful but quick exit at the earliest opportunity. That sort of person. Any sort of investment with them takes sacrifice of yourself. My energy, my time, my resources, whatever I can give you is, is going to go from me towards you. It's substitutionary. I lay myself down for you. That's service. Any troublesome child, any difficult employee or person we work with, any ever-present spouse or housemate that we might be confronted with, any relationship flourishes only really on substitutionary love as I give myself to you. Of course, God had a difficult relationship with the human race. And substitutionary love was the only thing that could make it flourish again. God gave up time and energy, dignity, life. And that's how Jesus ends his conversation with James and John. You want glory, James and John? You are asking for glory? Let me explain how Christian leadership works. So that's the first thing. James and John asked for glory. And then Jesus goes on to demonstrate this in the flesh with his second conversation that Mark's, Mark puts next to it, where, which is where blind Bartimaeus asks for mercy. Okay, so secondly, blind Bartimaeus asks for mercy, verses 46 to 52. Here's our table again on the screen, which just uh, abridges it a little bit so we can see what's going on. So first of all, bl- bl- this, this blind beggar by the side of the road in Jericho says, have mercy on me. You can immediately see how different that is from saying, do whatever I ask. Verse 46. Then they came to Jericho. As Jesus and his disciples, together with a large crowd, were leaving the city, a blind man, Bartimaeus, which means son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside, begging. When he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him and told him to be quiet, but he shouted all the more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, call him. So they called to the blind man, cheer up, on your feet, he's calling you. Throwing his cloak aside, he jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. So you can picture this scene. They're leaving the city with a big throng. Jesus is Mr. Popular. He's on his way to Jerusalem before everything's turned against him. And there's one awkward beggar at the side of the road who insists on embarrassing himself and everyone else. Shouting out. Presumably he's shouting out to Jesus because he's probably heard. Jesus healed a blind guy back at Bethsaida, Mark chapter 8. And uh, this is his chance. You know, this is his one chance when this, this guy is passing by and I've been blind all my life and here he is. I've got to have him heal me. This is my shot. You can begin to understand why he shouts out and embarrasses himself. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. He starts shouting. People try to hush him up. You know, just like people try and cover up your embarrassment today if you begin to get a bit keen on Jesus Christ. Ooh, stop. Stop mentioning Jesus' name in conversation. It really just spoils the dinner party. Stop it, stop it, stop it. Stop, just, sh- sh- stop it, stop it. No, but he, he cries out all the more. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. You think it's embarrassing to have me shout that in a sermon? How much more if you're out in public life and this guy's crying out to Jesus Christ? Presumably, blind Bartimaeus is onto something, isn't he? He doesn't get to say very much. He doesn't have many words in the script, but Jesus, son of David, 
have mercy on me. They, they, they mean something. Let me just try and explain. Son of David, that's messianic. So in the Old Testament, David was the great Davidic king, and from him, the big line of kings came. So for this guy to sit at the side of the road and say, Jesus, son of David, that's, that's saying, you're a king. You're a, you're a messianic king. And then the next bit, have mercy on me. Well, that's packed with meaning too. You read through the Psalms, which the, the Jews would have known off by heart. Have mercy on me is the sort of thing that ordinary people say to God all the time. It comes up again and again and again in the Psalms. Have mercy on me, O God. So you see what's happening when this blind beggar sits at the side of the road and embarrasses himself. He shouts out, Messianic God King, grant me an audience. Okay, now we're off to the races. I think he understands something about Jesus Christ that maybe the other guys didn't. And get this, right? Jesus making his way to Jerusalem, big crowd of people, the, the good and the great. Everyone wants a piece of Jesus at the moment. His PR stock is high. Jesus stops. He stops. It actually says that in the text. You can, you can look and see it. Jesus stops for a homeless guy who couldn't even see. He stops. And he turns to, G, to blind Bartimaeus. And he says, okay, call him. I want to speak to him. Come on, come on. Jesus stops. See how full of grace he is, not just to stubborn disciples, but also to blind beggars. Mercy, of course, is something undeserved. You say to the police officer who stops you uh, when you're driving your car, look, I know I was speeding. Uh, I have no right to ask this, but please could you have mercy on me? Well, that's undeserved. Mercy is undeserved. I don't deserve to be let off. And Jesus stops, answers the cry for mercy. He didn't deserve to have Jesus stop for him. And gives him the time of day. Incidentally, you recognize Jesus' model of leadership. Greatness is measured in service. Greatness is measured this way when you behave this way. Okay, that's all the approach. So we've been on the top line the whole time. You see how long that is compared to James and John swaggering up to Jesus and asking for a blank check? Blind Bartimaeus. Wow. Then he gets to the question. Verse 51. The blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Very simple. I want to see. I'm a blind man who just wants to see. And then in quick succession, we get to the answer. Jesus equally swift off the mark. Go, verse 52. Your faith has healed you. Immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus along the road. You notice the difference there just in our table? So uh, blind by Timaeus, long approach, long run up to talking to Jesus. But then actually his faith is his question is full of faith and Jesus' answer is full of grace it was the other way with the other two so great if greatness is measured in service it seems like discipleship is measured in faith if greatness is measured in service then it does seem for blind Bartimaeus that his discipleship is measured in faith now the, the trouble is with this can't measure it on a tape measure there are no increments to faith. In fact, you get yourself in a theological muddle if you, if you start to do that and think, how strong is my faith? How, how long or how great is it? It's much more binary than that in the Bible. Faith is binary. You know, it's, it's an either or. I have faith in Jesus Christ, the son of David, the Messianic king, or I don't. Yes or no. For instance, we could have set blind Bartimaeus a true or false quiz. Blind Bartimaeus, 
we might have said if he was on Mastermind answering true or false questions. True or false questions. True or false, blind Bartimaeus. Jesus of Nazareth is the son of David, the Messianic king. True, he would have said. Okay, question two, your final question. True or false, blind Bartimaeus, Jesus of Nazareth is God in the flesh who can have mercy on me and forgive my sins. True, he would have said enthusiastically. Ah, blind Bartimaeus, you answered true to both questions. I see you're a person of faith. You see, it's, it's either or, faith or no faith. Do you believe that Jesus is this or not? Discipleship is measured in faith that way. They say that beggars can't be choosers, don't they? Quite right. I guess you can't be. But um, James and John couldn't be choosers. But the, the choice for blind Bartimaeus was faith or no faith. I was invited to join a Facebook group a few years ago. You know, back in the back in the early days of Facebook when you could just set up a group and invite people to join it, like a secret internet club. Uh, this, this group was set up by a guy who used to go to my school, and it was called, I'm a Christian and I'm proud of it. Now, I, I don't think I'm being unfair to the guy who set it up to say that he wasn't the trendiest guy in school. So, so a few years after we've left school, we both become Christians. Glory, hallelujah, praise the Lord. He sets up this group, I'm a Christian and I'm proud of it invites me to join. There's nothing in it for me. I mean, absolutely nothing. For this to appear on my Facebook profile for everyone to see with this guy and the other people who have already agreed to join it, not much going for them socially. I'm a Christian and I'm proud of it. Ooh, you can imagine how I paused and my mouse hovered over the accept button as I thought about this for several days and weeks. To make matters worse, the grammar was really bad, okay? So, um, (laughs) I'm a Christian and I'm proud of it. Every time he spelled I'm, he used a comma instead of an apostrophe. (laughs) Doesn't doesn't bother some of you, but some of you, that would as well as me, okay? And yet, as I thought about it, this this was a good lesson for me as a Christian, and it remains a good lesson. How utterly appropriate for me to express my membership, my faith in Jesus Christ with this socially awkward, embarrassing group whose membership comprises the undesirables. There I am, joining the group, accepting eventually the invitation alongside the socially awkward guy from school who can't spell, the, the blind guy from the roadside at Jericho, and the ordinary average European whose best hope in life is that Jesus Christ would look kindly on me, have the time of day for me and answer my prayer for mercy. How entirely appropriate. I think, you know, ordinary Christians aren't so different from blind Bartimaeus. Just every ordinary Christian believer who's ever lived. Because we too at Christchurch Mayfair haven't been allowed to see Jesus Christ with my own eyes. Have you ever seen him face to face? Neither have blind Bartimaeus. We too have heard reports of him from other people. You know, we hear news of Jesus Christ and the things that he's done and how kind he is to strangers and the way he might treat us if we ever got an audience with him. And we too can cry out for mercy. Use exactly the same words as he did. Blind Bartimaeus is actually the last person to get healed in Mark's gospel. Do you know that? He's the last one. So there's been a bunch of healings, a bunch of amazing stuff Jesus has done. But from now on, chapter 11, he's going to, Jesus is going to be in Jerusalem. He's going to be at the temple. He's going to be debating with the leaders. No more healings. 
And Mark does that for a reason, to show us that he's a model. He is the, the believer, disciple par excellence. The one we're supposed to look to for having got things right. He has faith in Jesus Christ. He doesn't give up. He counts the cost and then he follows Jesus along the road. Which does leave us with the question, finally, what kind of disciple will you be? It's done me a lot of good this week to start my daily prayers in the same way that blind Bartimaeus started his prayer. Lord, have mercy on me. It's good for me because that that phrase, the first thing I say to God in the morning, in fact, it's really the first thing I say to anybody in the whole entire world at the start of a day this week, that, that phrase, Lord, have mercy on me, it acknowledges that I have no right to your time, God. I have no right to your affections. I have no right to your power at work in my life or to your answering my prayer. No right whatsoever. But the, the fact that I'm saying it to you, that's, that's an act of faith on my part. I've heard what you're like. I know who you are. I know that you're merciful to people like me. And of course, it has the added advantage that if any part of me is insulted to pray that prayer one morning, if any, if any part of me thinks, well, this is a bit demeaning to say, Lord, have mercy on me, the first words I utter after climbing out of bed, then that's a warning sign on my dashboard that something's not right. Shows there's a little bit of James and John in my attitude that says, I deserve endless time, Lord, at your right hand, chewing the cud with you and bothering you with my abrasive, vulgar questions. Lord, rather, have mercy on me. There's a nice moment in the Bible, um, very much towards the end, when James, sorry, John, son of Zebedee, uh, writes in 1 John chapter 3, 16, uh, a telltale phrase which shows that he finally got there with this sort of attitude. He says this, 1 John 3.16, Jesus Christ laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Jesus Christ laid down his life, we ought to do the same. Ah, spot on, John. You got there in the end. That's terrific. That's discipleship. Faith in Jesus Christ. He laid down his life for me and that's greatness. I'm willing to do the same for other people. I'm going to leave a moment for quiet reflection for you to to tell God what needs to happen now in your life with your leadership, with your discipleship. And then we're going to pray a prayer that's on the service sheet about the Lord having mercy on us. So a moment for, for quiet reflection. Let's join in this prayer together. I'll start off. And if you join in the repeats with me. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. Amen.